Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are now tuned in to the Asian Madness Podcast. A podcast where we discuss all things true crime, mysterious, morbid, and odd from the other side of the world. I'm your host, Jessica. Please sit back, relax, and let's dive into this week's topic. Hi everyone. Before I begin this week's episode, I would like to apologize for, yes, my voice. I never get sick, and yet here I am, sick when I am recording, so that sucks. I will sound a little bit croaky at times, but I think you'll be able to understand me most of the time. If it's really bad, please email me and tell me. I'll do it again once I'm better. Thanks. And as usual, before I start, I would like to run a promo for a really great podcast. This podcast is hosted by Shane Waters, and it's called Out of the Shadows. Hey, crime fans. This is Gemma Hoskins from The Keepers. I would like to invite you to take a listen to the new podcast series called The Redhead Murders. My friend, podcaster, Shane Waters, has invited me to work with him on this very cold case of women who were murdered 30-some years ago, all in the same area of the United States. Of course, being a redhead myself and being a practicing PI, sort of, I am delighted to work with Shane. So I'm inviting you to listen to the new Redhead Murders on Out of the Shadows podcast. You can also take a look at the Redhead Murders Facebook page, Please join us. Please try and help us. Over and out. Peace. You can find our podcast, Out of the Shadows, in all podcast outlets. Visit us online at shadowspod.com. See you there. Okay, so if Gemma Hoskins from The Keepers is telling you to listen, then I really think you should listen. Shane is doing really great work and spreading the word about the Redhead Murders, so I encourage everyone to listen to the series and help out if that's possible. Now that we got that out of the way, let me start today's episode. In Chinatown, no one hears the screams when the gangster comes to collect. They reference me as Bakwai. Bakwai means white ghost. But those on the receiving end of the fist of John Willis call him the White Devil. Willis is the unlikeliest of Chinatown mob bosses, believed to be the first white guy ever to rise to the top of an Asian crime syndicate in the U.S. He was unique as far as walking 
through Chinatown as the only white guy, uh, bigger, stronger, taller uh, than most of the people he was hanging out with. Chinese guy that was in there, um, you know, kind of mocked him because this big white kid, who does he think he is coming in here to take my money? And John understood what he was saying in Chinese and then spoke back to him in Chinese after pretty much destroying the gambling house. I think that earned him respect within the community. Hey all, welcome back to another full-length episode of the Asian Madness podcast. Sorry about the delay. I blame CrimeCon for messing up my schedule, but I forgive CrimeCon as well because I had fun, and I hope you all forgive me too. This episode will be quite different from the previous ones. There will be no country information or stats. This will not be your typical murder mystery case, although, well, Yes, people actually do kind of die, as you will see later. For this episode, we will be going to the United States. We will be taking a look at certain Asian groups in the United States. And to be even more exact, the Asian Mafia Gangs. We will discuss the life of a man named John Willis, also known to the FBI and to all of us as the White Devil. As his nickname suggests... John Willis is a white guy. At first glance, he might come off as your typical American white boy until you realize he might be one of the only white guys who's ever made it to the top of an Asian gang, or the Asian underworld. So what brought this seemingly normal white guy into the Chinese-Asian underworld? What made people trust this guy so much? And what made him even want to join an Asian gang in the beginning? I have never heard of this guy before, nor have I ever thought about looking into Asian gangs in the U.S. or anywhere else, but I find it to be a great mix of Asia and of the Western world. So thank you to Justin Rimmel from the Mysterious Circumstances podcast for suggesting this case. I am fully aware that you suggested this case like a million years ago, but hey, here I am. A lot of the information I will be providing you will be coming from a book called White Devil, written by Bob Halloran. A bit of a disclaimer though, although this episode is not the usual murder case, there will still be a lot of violent details that involve threats, beatings, extortion, you know, the usual gang stuff. Just to be clear, I do not in any way agree with the ways of gangs or gang members. Before I dive into the life of the White Devil, I think it's best I give you all a very brief introduction to the structure and history of the Chinese Asian gangs. I know that when I say gangs, it sounds like I'm referring to a bunch of teenage hoodlums who are prowling the streets at night, scaring innocent civilians or robbing corner stores. But no, Asian gangs actually have quite the history, dating all the way back to China in the 1700s. The first name given to these societies was the Earth and Heaven Society. It actually sounds like a cult, but it's not. Their emblem was a triangle that represented the heavens, the earth, and humanity. And this is pretty much why it is commonly referred to as the triad in English. This and many other societies were mostly established as secret anti-government societies at first, as in against the Qing Empire, which began around 1644 and ended in the year 1912. 
the main purpose of the society was to have a band of brothers who would work together towards a common goal, which at first would have been to overthrow the Qing dynasty. As time went by, these secret societies mostly became a brotherhood or a surrogate family for others. And times were tough, so people needed to find ways to make money and survive. Some of these societies began to shift their focus. They instead started branching out to all sorts of criminal activities, such as drug trafficking, brothels, gambling dens, money laundering, etc. They would help keep each other safe and help out in whatever way it was needed. They were there for each other through thick and thin. It sounds noble at first, but in reality, they're actually a bunch of criminals. One FBI agent says that the origin of the Asian gang is a little bit romanticized and glorified by tying their roots to ancient China. These societies still exist in China, but just in different forms. As you would guess, many of these gangs that came from the original triad left its Asian origins and began to take over different areas of the world. Aside from having influence in the usual Chinese communities like Hong Kong, Macau, Taiwan, Vietnam, etc., they have also established their existence in countries in Southeast Asia, cities in the U.S. like San Francisco, New York, L.A., etc. Hong Kong is pretty notorious for its fair share of triad rumors and activities. Okay, but for real though, China's history is a bit too intense and there's just so much to mention. Going into the details would probably require a second podcast on the history of China, and I am really not up for that right now. You have no idea how much I suffered just trying to understand this part of history. So now that you know a bit about the history of the triad, let's begin our story about the White Devil. Our story takes place mostly in Boston, where John Willis and his family was from. He was born on May 11, 1971, at the Boston City Hospital. Right from the start, his childhood was not considered uh, ideal. His father was an abusive alcoholic who regularly beat his mother, and he also happened to be an ex-con. One day when John was three, the man up and left his family. It was rumored that he was running from the Irish mob, but he later on admitted that he left because he realized John's mother was not the love of his life. Very responsible, I know. John was raised by his mother, Francine, along with three much older half-siblings, Sandra, Linda, and Richie. As a baby growing up without a dad, Richie pretty much took over the role of being a father figure to John. Richie lived on the second floor with his wife and kids, so he was mostly around for John and his mother. Richie had a great carpet business going, but he unfortunately also had a bad case of coke addiction. When John was still a boy, he had an argument with Richie and told him that he wished he was dead. Believe it or not, Richie did drop dead two days later from a heart attack. He was only 34. Their mother, Francine, fell into a deep depression, but at the same time, she wanted to give everything she could to her youngest boy, shower him with the best clothes, the best toys, the best hockey equipment, you name it. It sort of all went away when Francine discovered she was very sick due to her diabetes condition. She arrived in the hospital one day and left without her legs. As expected, her depression worsened. 
Life changed drastically for the 14-year-old boy as well. While his sisters thought their sister-in-law, Sonny, was caring for John and Francine, Sonny thought Sandra and Linda were caring for them. I mean, the lady lived upstairs. It should not be that difficult to, like, keep an eye on them, right? In reality, John was the one trying to keep his mother alive and sane. He cooked, he gave her her meds, he bathed her, everything. But her complications continued, and by age 15, John was officially an orphan. I would say this is the first stage of John's life, sort of a prequel to his future self. He was confused and lonely and angry. He had to let it out somehow, so he quit school, joined the gym, lived off Burger King and steroids, fought random people, and worked part-time with his brother-in-law. Little bit of info. John was described as pudgy as a child, and around this time, this dude got ripped. I'm sure the steroids helped a little, though. John soon was introduced to a new job as a bouncer at a local nightclub. He was only 16, but his build was perfect for the job. The owner didn't question him, only told him to do his job and to watch out for Asian gangs that would sometimes hang out at the club. John did as he was told. He kept to his job. He ignored all the hot women going in and out of the club. Then one day, something happened that would change his life. An Asian guy, probably from one of the local Asian gangs, was getting beat up in the club by a group of other guys. And when John saw this, he tried to intervene. John helped the Asian man get away from the group and tried to clean him up. As he was helping the Asian guy, his friends showed up and automatically assumed that John was the aggressor. Before they turned on John, though, the Asian man, turns out his name is Wapping Joe, told them that no, no, this white guy's cool. Before he left the club, Wapping Joe turned to John and gave him his number. John took the number, stuffed it in his pocket, and life went on. This would be a defining moment in John's life. So now John is 16, alone, and trying to survive in the city with his very low salary. One night in January of 1987, he was feeling especially hopeless. After failing to get any help from his sisters, he pulled out the crumpled piece of paper with Whopping Joe's number in it. He decided to give it a go, because why not? Beggars can't be choosers. Whopping Joe picked up the phone and immediately recognized the white boy on the end of the line. After John told him about his current troubles, Whopping Joe told him to hang on and that someone would be by to pick him up. In 10 minutes, two cars showed up and a Chinese man told John to get in. John got in. They arrived at a family house and John was immediately awed and taken aback with the situation and what was happening. There were a dozen or so Asian gangsters about to have dinner. They eyed him curiously but immediately accepted him. John definitely stood out but strangely enough he recalled that he felt at home. That night, he experienced something he never imagined possible, a sense of belonging. He was intrigued with the culture and the language and how loyalty worked in this culture. This was how John Willis randomly joined the world of Asian gangs. He was initiated to the gang the following day by sharing a meal and going on a shopping spree with his new brothers. 
Obviously, these gangs were pretty rich, so this would be the first time John experienced shopping without having to worry about the price tag. Sounds like a good time, though. John was giving the nickname Bakwai, which literally translates to white ghost in Cantonese. But the word ghost doesn't really mean ghost. In Chinese, it's another way of referring to a person, but with a rather negative connotation. So John immediately began to work as an enforcer in the gang, meaning he helped to collect gambling debts and drug money and such. He was also learning more about the culture and picking up the language as he worked, figuring out the rules and the way of life that probably only existed in this world. Although these people talked about respect and loyalty, they were in fact violent criminals. He watched how people treated one another. And how they dealt with people who failed to show respect or loyalty. You could say he was completely immersed in this world and even kind of obsessed. There was an instance when one gang member lost control and ended up getting the police involved. This was super not ideal and pretty much what gangs don't want to happen, since you know, they're criminals. He had to be punished for being so reckless, and so they decided to break both his legs. He did not object. He just took the punishment because he knew he deserved it. So after a year and a half of working as an enforcer, he was transferred to New York, almost as if he were sent to do an internship. During his two years of training in New York, he witnessed more than he could have imagined. During this time, he perfected his Chinese, but it's Cantonese, not Mandarin. He learned about Buddhism, served different gang leaders. Faced all sorts of dangers like shootouts with opposing gangs or police, ran around with different gang members, and all that stuff. John was only around 19 when he returned to Boston, and he had probably experienced way more than any other member in the gang could have ever thought of. Upon his return to Boston, he realized that he actually had FBI agents following him and watching him. Instead of feeling spooked or irritated, he took it as one of the biggest compliments ever. This meant that he was important enough. John officially joined one of the most famous and powerful triad gangs in Boston at the time, called the Pingon Gang in 1990. Kind of ironic because Pingon literally means peace in Cantonese. Anyway. The history of Pingon could be traced back to the 70s, when the godfather of Chinatown at the time, a man by the name of Stephen Tse, A.K.A. Sky Dragon, arrived in the U.S. to seek a new life. He set up the most powerful gang in the late 70s, and his reputation became even more dignified when he met up with several other triad kingpins in Hong Kong, sort of like a triad summit thing. And they agreed to be a brotherhood-type relationship. Stephen got his work done by threatening businesses with violence. There was no shortage of gang members, so it was very easy to keep the violence to a minimum, since all they had to do was show up and threaten to call a hundred gang members over, and people would be scared. Over the years, Stephen would be arrested two times. The first time serving eighteen months, but the second time he was not convicted yet. He immediately decided to return to Hong Kong to lay low, opting for a less dangerous business 
as in a bean sprout business. Yes, very random and rather unexpected, especially for a mob boss. As Sky Dragon was no longer in the picture, tons of wannabe leaders began to fight each other for the crown. But the next leader of the gang would be a Vietnamese Chinese man by the name of Bai Ming, whom John would end up following and serving faithfully. He was his personal protector and always took extra precautions with his boss. Working for the most powerful man in Chinatown basically made John the second most powerful man. In 1991, something John would refer to as traumatic happened. This is one tough guy that rarely showed fear, sadness, or joy. One of his best friends at the time had been shot right in front of him when they were trying to settle a dispute with other gang members. John said, three in the chest, three in the head. His shit went everywhere. You could see the holes through his head. He was dead. Okay, that sounded a bit like a poem, but it's not. His friend's mother happened to arrive at the scene, and John had to block her from seeing her son, but unable to properly comfort her. Shootings, stabbings, and all sorts of violence happened almost on a daily or weekly basis, and death was usually an expected outcome. Police and journalists that had been investigating Asian gangs and crimes even pointed out that the Boston Chinatown crime rate was way out of proportion. So, what is it about Boston? Aside from having his Asian gang as family, John also found love. In 2005, he met a Vietnamese-American woman named An Nguyen. She was 14 years his junior and was a single mother to a daughter. He knew she was different and the attraction was instant. She was not impressed or scared of John and she thought he was just another white guy with an Asian fetish. John refused to give up and after he got her number, he would try to win her over on multiple occasions. He never crossed a line and always treated her with respect, unlike any other woman he had ever been with. Okay, I mean, his nickname was Captain Save-A-Ho, so yes, he was a major player. Soon enough, Ann was convinced John was serious about her, and this is how John gained a new wife and a daughter. I don't think they were ever legally married, but John still refers to her as his wife. But we all know how it is, though. Although this new family brought John happiness, it was also his weakness, which, in the end, did make a difference. John would be in and out of prison several times between 1996 to 2008, usually for minor crimes ranging from a few months to a few years. During his time in prison, he would come across people who dabbled in drugs, and every time he got out, he tried to take up a new business, starting with marijuana, then once with cocaine. After serving another prison sentence, he had decided on his newest venture. His Chinatown boss, Bai Ming, always told him to never dabble in drugs, but John wanted more in life and wanted to venture in this so-called business. John was not known to use drugs himself, but he definitely had no problem selling drugs to other people. He organized an oxycotton trafficking business between Florida and Massachusetts. As one would expect, 
he got super rich super fast. He was soon buying beach houses, expensive cars, and even bought himself a yacht. He provided for An and their daughter, but he would never let them in on his business in order to keep them safe. John's new side business was also pretty much completely separate from his ties with the Asian gangs. He did not want to mix the two worlds. For one thing, it might bring unnecessary attention, and he also didn't want to go against Bai Ming, who strongly disapproved of drugs. John's new oxycotton business was booming, and although he was more focused on this rather than his Chinatown gang, his ties were still there. It was around this time, 2010, when the FBI were investigating an Asian man named Wei Chen and his brothel business. He had already had a lot of run-ins with the police regarding prostitution, but now that they found out he was back at it, they began a surveillance on him. John worked with criminals, and so it was not a surprise when John paid visits to the brothels. The FBI accidentally overheard conversations about John's drug business and began to go after John. This case started out about prostitution, human trafficking, gambling, and extortion, but then led them to an entirely new scene. Two birds, one stone. The FBI continued to gather information and evidence for the next few months that could later be used to arrest and put John behind bars. John and his men began to run into problems with law enforcement. I wonder if he had a feeling things were kind of getting out of hand. He had planned on running away with a new ID, but before that could happen, he was arrested. It happened in March of 2011. It was 6am. John had finally made it home to be with his family after spending months in Florida, but was soon awoken by the police and FBI breaking down his door. He told An to stay in the room and that it'll all be fine. He went downstairs to turn himself in and asked them not to hurt An and their daughter. He was arrested without incident. John and 10 plus other members of his oxy ring were sentenced, but John, labeled as the kingpin, received a heavier sentence. He was given the choice to plead guilty and in return, law enforcement would leave An out of everything. Truth is, There was enough evidence that An had knowledge of what was going on and maybe even helped from time to time when it came to money transfers, witness tampering. They could arrest her if they really wanted to. John, of course, pleaded guilty and received a 20-year sentence for drug trafficking and money laundering. He is currently serving his sentence at the federal prison in Cumberland, Maryland. Something I realized while researching this case Big picture-wise, everything that happens in this man's life, starting from the time he joins the gang, is pretty much illegal, criminal, or immoral. So of course he's dangerous and belongs in prison. Most of the people mentioned should be put in jail for hurting other people as well. But it is details like these about his family, his life, and childhood trauma that sort of humanize him and make you feel like he's not that bad. Sure, he's no Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer or John Wayne Gacy, but I am positive that he has hurt plenty of people, destroyed many people's lives through other means, such as drugs, and even possibly killed people. The author of the book, Bob Halloran, asks John during a seven-hour interview if he has ever killed anyone. John's response was, 
I can't answer that. I skipped over a lot of details and events that happened in John's life and to those around him. A lot of these incidents were slightly irrelevant to the big picture. There are many sidetracks I want to discuss when it comes to this case though, but it's mostly about John's beliefs and his philosophy regarding mobster life. For one thing, John is a very devout believer. Of what? I can't be sure. He talks about God a lot. He believes that he will go to heaven and that God loves him, but his ideologies are not in complete accordance to those of Christians or Catholics or Buddhists. He doesn't believe that he is destined to serve a purpose in life, and that he's just got to do what he's got to do to survive. He's had three very distinct near-death experiences, which he says it's God's way of showing love for him. He had someone shoot him point-blank, except the gun jammed. He had someone else hold a gun to his face, but at the last minute, they decided to spare John's life. He was driving drunk once, and the car hit the side of the road, and while the car went over the cliff, he managed to roll out just in time and walked away with no cuts or bruises. John once even talked about Job from the Bible, finding a connection with Job because both of them had it good, but one day, it was all stripped away. John was also a strong believer of loyalty and respect. He talks about it often, and to him, these are the two most important things when it comes to his life in a gang. He doesn't want to hurt people necessarily, but when he feels disrespected, he goes all out. He's beaten plenty of people half to death for either disrespecting him, his friends, or his wife. He always links it back to the Chinese culture, but I mean... The old ways are more than likely not the same as they are now. Sure, Chinese culture does put a big emphasis on family loyalty, especially to elders. But I kind of feel like they're using it to fit into their way of life, rather than simply following the old ways. The whole method of treating people or demanding respect. For one thing, John believes in demanding respect. But for many of us, we might think respect should be earned. If we're doing good deeds and treating others right, people will respect us for who we are. Gangsters and mobsters may choose to threaten others verbally or physically to get respect. And I suppose that is their way of earning it. I'm sure the rules in their world do not really apply to us, and vice versa. John believes he literally had no other choice in life. Bob Halloran once talked about this in an interview, and he said that John always believed that this was his life path and that there was nothing he could do about it. In reality, he probably could have made other life choices. He could have not dropped out of high school. He could have tried to get a normal job and work his way up. He could have not joined a gang. But no, John insists that this was his only choice. As a millennial would describe this, he didn't choose the thug life. The thug life chose him. John also hated the FBI with a passion. I mean, not very surprising, I know. But he didn't hate them just because they were trying to take him down. He described the FBI as a legalized mob with a right to kill. The FBI to John was basically an organization that stopped people from making money behind the government's back. The truth is, the government, like anybody else, is in it for the money. John compares the United States to China and Russia, saying that they're pretty much the same. 
The government itself is a big criminal entity, except the U.S. government tries to cover it up by pretending to be the good guy. Do you think this story could have happened to any other person? Say, if it wasn't John Willis, but maybe some other white guy. Would they have also been so accepting? A lot of minority groups tend to be very insulated and are not very open to people from other backgrounds to join them. This has nothing to do with disliking them, but more to do with trust. These people from the Asian gangs more likely have similar backgrounds and similar struggles, so to them, it would be easier to trust one another. It also helped that John joined when he was only 16, as it is easier to mold someone to fit into your ways when they're younger. He was pretty much just a kid. I don't think he would have received that royal treatment if he were, say, 30 when he joined. When John was asked why he felt that Bai Ming liked him so much, this was his response. I think he liked me because I was white. I was bigger. He felt it was a novelty to have a white guy who could speak broken Chinese and have someone who didn't typically grow up in Chinatown. My story is different from others. Not saying that I'm better or worse, it's just the way that I lived that let me assimilate into a culture where they didn't accept outsiders. When I was young, you didn't go to Chinatown. You didn't belong there if you weren't Chinese. But John was one hell of an exception, though. FBI agent Scott O'Donnell, whose task force was aimed to bring down John and his illegal doings, said that he has never seen anything quite like this. Yes, I'm pretty sure there have been instances where non-Asians have been running around with the Asian gang members, but never has one risen so high up the ladder and had so much power. Special Agent Vincent Lisi, in charge of the FBI's Boston Division, once said, Mr. Willis and his associates are an example of the opportunistic nature of organized crime groups whose members share a common bond of victimizing their communities through drug dealing, illegal gambling, extortion, and exploitation of women in their quest for illegal profits. The methodical nature and duration of this investigation reflect the focus of the Boston Organized Crime Task Force to secure justice for the victims and to make the community safer. Bob Halloran described John as charming, intelligent, and not at all intimidating during their interview. The only time John showed more emotion was when he talked about Ann and their daughter. John lost his family at a young age, so having a family now meant more to him than anything. He teared up when he talked about his daughter, and even though she isn't his daughter by blood, they recognize each other as parent and child. It seems as if neither Ann nor John have told their daughter that John is in prison because John doesn't want to disappoint her. He tells her he's working in Florida and will be back as soon as he can. Bob Halloran refrains himself from judging or taking a stand when it comes to John, but it is clear to him that John has no remorse for what he has done, since John believes it was all done for survival. John is somewhat bitter and angry that law enforcement managed to get him to do 20 years when the evidence they had against him wasn't even that solid. He insists that he was never caught with anything illegal on him. No pills, no nothing. They just wanted to get him because all his money was unaccounted for. He was also unhappy that his girlfriend was used against him. 
He maintains that he is who he is, and although he will no longer be dabbling in drugs once he's out, he will not change who he is, since you cannot strip a tiger of his stripes. Remember how I always say a case is not complete if there's no movie or some sort of adaptation about it? Well, there are rumors out there that Warner Brothers is working on a film about John Willis's life. And not very surprisingly, it is titled White Devil, same as the book. So, what did you guys think of this case? Do you think John is a complicated person? Or is he just flat out a good guy or a bad guy? I found this case to be pretty fascinating, and I have to say, research for this one took quite a while. No regrets, though. I learned a lot, and I had a great time reading into it. If you guys feel like digging more info into this, I highly recommend you read Bob's book, or just the online articles by the Rolling Stones or Vice. Good stuff. Okay, well, thanks for sticking with me. Till next time. As always, before I go, I would like to thank the following people for giving me lovely five-star reviews. Thank you. From the U.S., there's Gyros or Hyros. I'm not really sure how to pronounce that, so I'm sorry, and I think you know who you are. Safety Math, which is a very interesting name. From Canada, there's Triple OS. Whining About Crime, which is an excellent podcast. And Kyla Carrion, thank you. As for my new Patreon members, thank you Mike Brown from the Dark Poutine Podcast for upping your donation. That is very kind of you. Also thanks to Kyla Carrion and Veronica Moreno. Very active members in my Facebook group and very kind people overall, thank you. I would also like to say that the very first podcast that I have ever listened to was Robin Warder's The Trail Went Cold. And if you have never listened to that, you really have to. Well, my point is, Robin Warder decided to pledge to little old me. I mean, come on. Anyway, I would like to thank Robin Warder as well. So thank you and to all my Patreon members and to everybody who listens and subscribes and reviews me. I never really thought I would be doing a podcast. I mean, if you asked me last year, would I be doing a podcast now? My answer would be, of course not. Are you kidding me? But, well, things happen and here I am. So I would never have gotten this far without you guys listening and you guys supporting me. So thank you again from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. Please help me by rating, reviewing this podcast. If you're on social media, please look for me under the handle Asian Madness Pod. If you have any comments or suggestions, do not hesitate to write me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. I truly appreciate each and every one of you for being here. I am your host, Jessica. Till next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.